0: Hello, welcome to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare.
1: Well, hello, hello, welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Raffi Salazar from Rehab You Practice Solutions. Alrighty, so this week I'm in the middle of, again, this book, book project here. So I'm in the middle of l- reviewing, looking through edits, going back and forth with the, the editor and the publisher and trying to sort all the details out. So uh, the interviews have been a little bit slow here. What I'm gonna do, I've actually got an episode that I might release next week, but I might go ahead and and just release it regular on schedule. It depends on how interviews line up, but um, it's an interview with a, um, he's an active duty service member who's transitioning out and we talked, it was kind of off topic for the show in the sense that we weren't really talking about healthcare, specifically the healthcare industry or um, the business of healthcare, right? We talked a lot about the transition of our service members from active duty to civilian life how health plays a role in that and how the the view of kind of the dod approach to healthcare, which is basically patching up soldiers and sending them back out on the battlefield or getting them duty ready um just has some lingering effects as they transition into civilian life so um i thought it was an interesting uh, conversation. I have a, a soft spot in my heart for for veterans, anyways, because of my time at the VA. They're just a great group of folks, and unfortunately, um, a lot of them have to rely on the VA healthcare service or the VA healthcare system, which is not necessarily bad in and of itself, except for the fact that it is a large organization, and sometimes it is it's very easy for the individual the needs of the individual to be um, overlooked or kind of fall through the cracks because you're following procedure or policy which is something that i spent a good amount of time in fact we spent a whole chapter on it on the book uh, better outcomes a guide to humanizing health care you can search for that on amazon it should be published and available through uh, business expert press so it'll be available Barnes and Noble's Amazon all the all the places you can get books I'm sure <laughs> um and it'll be out uh, the the first week in October October 6 I think is what they they're telling me now so anyways look for that in the next week or two this week uh this like I said I've, I've been working on this book project didn't have an interview lined up But I've had a bunch of interesting conversations lately with clients, prospective clients, and just other folks that I know in the healthcare world, primarily in the private practice and um, the private practice outpatient ancillary healthcare space. So not so much big hospital systems, but I'm pretty sure that this trend that we're gonna talk about today falls in line with that or is very similar. And that is the trend of workforce issues. Now that's that sounds very kind of management consulting. Workforce and utilization. <laughs> really we're going to talk about the the great resignation, how that's affected healthcare systems and healthcare practices in general as they try to recruit specifically frontline clinical staff in the ancillary healthcare professionals. So I'm not going to talk about recruiting doctors or anything like that. We're going to talk specifically about those allied health services, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, um, nursing even. And I tend, I took a, a, a probably about two weeks uh, to go through a lot of the data from a kind of an analytical perspective in that. So I've had a lot of conversations with clients or prospective clients or Friends of mine who work in the healthcare spaces, consultants and have clients of their own who, are, who have issues with, you know, just I can't find clinicians to, to see patients, right? The, the work is there, the patients are there, there's definitely a need, I just can't find clinicians to serve them. So I took a, a couple weeks and kind of searched through a lot of research around student enrollment rates, around attrition rates, around uh, just retention in general, employee retention at healthcare organizations, and uh, it was even the topic of, of something we, uh, a discussion point at the NBCOT. So I sit on the board of directors for the National Board for Occupational Therapy. And it seems like every, every year we kind of have a, a rundown of kind of where the profession is at. It's, you know, we call it the like upcoming topics or, or future points of interest. And it's not really anything to do with... Um, specific operations of, of the board or anything like that, but it's kind of like trends to be aware of. And probably for the last couple meetings, we've had discussions around application rates to uh, occupational therapy programs across the country and the the steady decline that we've seen over the last specifically five years or so. I know when I was teaching, um, so this is back between the between the years of 2015 to 2020 those five years, it seemed like every single year, the program that I was teaching at, either as an adjunct or as as an assistant professor, it seemed like they were setting records every year for the number of applications. And then all of a sudden it started to to drop off a little bit, maybe plateau in 2019-ish, 2020, and then it's kind of taken a dump. And we'll (laughs) we'll talk about that in a little bit. And, um, well, I'll wait to talk about student enrollment when then because I I do have a, a pretty I'd, I'd like to say it's unique, but a, a different way of looking at it than what I've heard in a lot of the conversations at, at meetings like this. So um, let's just dive right in. So it is, it's is—it's no secret that the Great Resignation, I think if I hear that term again, I'm gonna lose my mind. I feel like I'm, I'm reading it all the time on, on websites, on news sites, on every everything, you know? <laughs> the Great Resignation is destroying this sector, this industry, or people are having a hard time because of the Great Resignation. Um, and healthcare is probably caught up in that a little bit. I would tend to think, and what I, the, the argument that I tend to make is that I don't necessarily think it's the great resignation itself that is the problem, because that would, it might make it difficult for certain healthcare organizations to attract healthcare workers, frontline clinical staff. Um, but what we're seeing in healthcare is a little different in that I believe what we're seeing and what the great resignation in healthcare kind of highlighted or really accelerated was just the the natural progression of an industry that was set up to have this problem in the first place. Now, now what do I mean by that? So um, I don't tend to think that the pandemic happened in 2020, we all went remote or a lot of people went remote and that made a lot of clinicians decide that they were going to to find something remote and retire from their, or resign from their jobs. I don't think that was the case. I think that the case that we're seeing in healthcare is that the move to remote work or this whole shutdown that happened really just accelerated the process of an already sick healthcare system. And what I mean by that is that particularly in the ancillary healthcare professionals, so what would necessarily or or, or maybe commonly be seen from a management or maybe a, a, a CFO, a financial office um, viewpoint of being a revenue driver of an organization. So. Physical therapy, for example, occupational therapy, for example, the rehab services in a lot of sectors in, in healthcare are the revenue drivers for that organization by and large. Nursing nursing plays a, a, a large role as well, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So these professions have been feeling pressure for years, arguably decades. Um, in light of decreasing reimbursement costs, the increased oversight, and kind of attention to the cost of healthcare in general, and where do we cut? Oh, well, we we quote unquote overutilize, or we really utilize this one part of healthcare, this this one specialty. So what we have to do is start incentivizing folks not to use it, right? Or maybe just paying them less, and that's going to save us money. So we've seen decreased reimbursement rates kind of across the board in healthcare, but really targeted on some of those. Um, what may or may not have been intentionally viewed as superfluous uh, healthcare services, right? Unnecessary healthcare services, and I, as as an occupational therapist myself, as somebody that owns a clinic and a, a private outpatient physical therapy clinic, I understand the incentives that healthcare practice owners have as well, and healthcare organizations have for volume, right? To see more. Uh, to charge for more visits, kind of like like Dennis, right? If you're not drilling, you're not billing. If you're not seeing patients come through the door, you're not seeing revenue, you're not realizing revenue. So there is an incentive to see a larger and growing volume of visits per organization or, or location. And the reason that that volume keeps having to go higher and higher is because the reimbursement rate keeps going down. It's kind of this vicious cycle, right? Every time there's a cut, um, organizations across the country like, okay, well, we need to up the number of visits that we see per day. Right. And that's going to offset this this drop that we have. And it's just a a truism of of business in general. It's easier to sell more to customers that you currently have right than it is to go out and find new ones. So um, it's easier to just increase the frequency of treatment than it is to go out and find more referrals in a lot of cases. Um, So that, I believe, is driving some of that. But that's that's not here nor there. That, that system or that, the context of healthcare is kind of framed in that for the last 10 or 15 years. We're on this fee-for-service model. Healthcare organizations are using billable encounters by ancillary healthcare professionals as revenue drivers to run their other operations and the other overhead that they're going to have, the regulatory overhead, the administrative burden, all of that. Um, comes from the the boots-on-the-ground clinicians that are treating patients and submitting those CPT codes, right? billing the the patients. So that's all going on in the background. And even when I graduated from OT school and started treating patients myself 10 years ago now, that was a topic of conversation throughout my time in school. And then immediately, realizable when I was an actual licensed clinician was that there is a a number of patients that you need to see per day or a number of billable units that you need to produce each day or treatment minutes, however you had it broken down, there was a requirement from management and all these organizations on their revenue producing staff, right? Their their productive billable staff. So that pressure's always been there. And then what happens is uh, the pandemic happens, right? And what we see is two things, which were kind of the perfect storm, right? So the first thing that happened is a lot of those, uh, a lot of those staff that would have been treating and working in uh, outpatient centers found themselves without patients. And a lot of that was because the, uh, the elective procedures all stopped, right? (laughs) So many organizations just saw their revenue dry up. Not only their revenue, but their their patient base too. They didn't have patients to see because they weren't doing knee surgeries or knee replacements or um, shoulder surgery, whatever, the orthopedics and a a lot of those uh, elective procedures that are really big business for healthcare across the board, for hospitals, for private outpatient clinics, all of that kind of just dried up. It didn't kind of. It did dry up. They just weren't doing those surgeries anymore unless it was an emergent procedure. You know, somebody had a, a car accident or a car wreck and they needed orthopedic surgery. They were going to get that surgery. But the the person who'd been uh, planning on doing a knee replacement and they were going to do it in the middle of 2020 found themselves in a situation where they weren't able to do that. Right. So that in and of itself caused a huge budget crunch on every health care organization. So since frontline clinical staff staff drive much of that revenue in in healthcare in general, where do you think the pressure was to make up the difference? Who felt the squeeze? Not only were these clinicians, these physical therapists, these nurses, these occupational therapists encouraged and often berated to be more productive, but they were also the target of cost cutting and layoffs. So you had this whole group of people who have been the revenue drivers of the healthcare organizations for years, they're getting increasing and increasing pressure to be more productive, in light of uh, in light of insurance uh, reimbursement rates going lower or, or reductions in reimbursement rates, and then on top of that, their patient base drives up, and a lot of the work that they would have had is is going away. So not only are there th- is there this pressure now that they've got to be more productive, that they've got to drive a lot of the revenue for their now j- not just for the organization but for their own job, They're also The first ones to get cut (laughs) in a round of layoffs, right? Um, I know one regional hospital system that I was talking to laid off 90% of its outpatient rehab staff, 90%. The other 10% were rerouted into the acute care hospitals to do... um, things that were they weren't outside of their scope of practice so to speak but they were outside of their regular regular duties <laughs> um some folks that i had heard of some uh, occupational physical therapists that i had heard of were rerouted into doing covid testing uh drive-through covid testing and i mean they were grateful because they got to keep their jobs and they were getting paid to do that but it was not um it was not what they signed up to do right so all of this 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 whole drive for um the revenue drivers feeling the squeeze because of a lot of those elective procedures going away and they had to halt those those non-essential medical procedures um and the drops in the budgets meant that people were getting cut and it just it naturally it makes sense right like if you're not utilizing outpatient therapy for example because you're not doing a lot of surgeries a lot of elective procedures then that's where you cut right you need the nurses in the hospitals to care for people that were in the hospitals um, but then, on top of that, the ones that are there—the outpatient clinics or the, the those ancillary healthcare services that remained—were still in a position of needing to. A lot of times, felt like they needed to make up for that decreased volume through utilization and productivity. Um, so, as a lot of this pushed clinicians, they were. <laughs> um, it just was not a good situation, right? <laughs> Hopefully, we don't ever have to relive that again. But um, so, and then you have organizations that are, are, you know, laying off or temporarily suspending, you know, huge percentages of their ancillary healthcare staff, and then rerouting the other percentages to do other tasks. All of this pushed those clinicians who were kind of on the fence about retiring over the edge, and they were just like, you know, what? I've, I was planning on retiring at the end of this year. Might as well make it this, you know, this month, right? Um, so many decided to go ahead and retire. Many younger clinicians began uh, just bearing the brunt of both the layoffs, the kind of the emotional stress of job security and all that kind of stuff. Um, in addition with the increased stress and uh, workplace environment, high pressure, high stress, impre- increasing productivity standards, and these clinicians weren't in a position to retire. And every hospital or clinic in the country, either instituted hiring freezes and budget cuts or, or something to that effect, that there was nowhere for them to go. So high stress work environments place enough strain on employees already, but then you add the fact or the feeling that that you're trapped in the job that you don't want, but you can't leave and you've got yourself a, 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 just a recipe for burnout, right? Um, so when we look at everything in that context and the difficulty it is to find clinical staff I tend to look at it as as more of the pandemic didn't necessarily cause it <laughs> but it accelerated the inevitable right we were the healthcare itself was already built on this business model of high productivity high utilization fee for service model and then when you take away the services that they can bill for the fees <laughs> dry up right so it's a it's an unsha- uh, it's an unstable platform to build on anyways in the event of of something like this where elective procedures go away. So it was, in my mind, kind of the the inevitable outcome or the inevitable conclusion to uh, to the system that we had built. But how does this tie into uh, employment or enrollment rates at, at colleges and all that? Well. Um, Anybody who's tried to hire clinical staff knows that recruiting and retra- retaining talent, particularly now, this at the time of this recording, it's 2020, uh, halfway through quarter three of 2020. So obviously for smaller clinics and organizations that are competing with large hospital systems with bigger budgets and more benefits, um, it can get expensive very quickly to hire clinical staff. So a lot of private practice owners that I speak to feel like they're just priced out of the market right because these hospital systems are looking for clinical staff and they they're just throwing they're just throwing money at these people trying to retain them trying to attract them trying to recruit them um at one point in time i think maybe this time before the pandemic 2019 or something like that u.s physical therapy was spending something like 56 percent of their um of their revenue was going to payroll and associated costs and the last time I pulled the numbers, which was probably Q1 of 2022, it was 63%. So I mean, it's it's gone up six percentage points since then, which is a lot, you know. Especially when you're talking about a business that might be sitting at, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15% profitability. You take six percent away, and you're talking half of that <laughs> going away, right? Um, and then on top of that, you got the, you know, the, you've got the economic fallout of the of the pandemic the inflation and the increased cost of living and logistics and supply chains and all that kind of stuff we're not going to go into that but recruiting and retaining clinical talent has been a challenge especially for those smaller organizations because it's getting more expensive just from a a number standpoint we're having to pay these clinicians more a lot of times they're demanding more a lot of times they're um they're being offered positions at larger organizations. I'm speaking now to private practice owners like myself. They're they're being these pro, uh, prospective employees or these candidates are being offered positions at large institutions that have just a bigger budget for benefits, retirement, and um, and health insurance and all that kind of stuff. So it, be- it becomes expensive, right? I think probably in the last few few weeks alone, I've seen countless. Uh, posts on social media, whether it be the the Twitters or LinkedIn, about uh, organizations and some not not small organizations either. You know, large large chains like physical therapy chains here that have multiple locations that are you know either mid-sized regional players in eight or nine states, having postings for clinical positions like physical therapists or occupational therapists and they're going months without getting a single applicant. So, clinics and organizations across the country seem to be struggling with attracting and retaining specifically, like I said, the frontline clinical staff, those boots on the ground clinicians that actually treat and serve the patients. So the question is, why in the world with an aging population that we know is is going to have increasing medical needs over the next 10 or 15 years as the population ages, things like um, decreased mobility, increased fall risk, increased rate of uh, surgeries, joint replacements, and the like. All these medical professionals are, are reporting record number of graduates this year, or at least major medical professions are, are reporting a record number of, of graduates this year and last year. How can it be so difficult to recruit and retain clinical staff? Well, here is the twofold answer. The twofold answer is one, um, clinic attrition or clinician attrition, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but I do want to explore college graduation rates because um, enrollment tends to be, a, a, some people call it a, a leading indicator for where healthcare workforce is going to be in the next several years, which it is. You know, if you're, if you're taking in less students or the enrollment is declining year over year, you're going to have less available clinicians in the workforce. However, I also look at it as a a lagging indicator of where clinician sentiment is for their job satisfaction or their um, willingness to recommend the profession to other people. So let's talk about this for a minute. So again, I sit on the board for MVCOT. At our last meeting, we spent a bit of time discussing the issue of student enrollment, specifically in occupational therapy. because that, that's the board that I sit on, so we we were talking about that and coming trends for our profession. But again, this is I'll, I'll outline some statistics here that kind of show that it's across the board for allied health. Now, I've been removed from the academic world for a couple of years, so I was kind of unaware of the decline in applications. I don't really um, talk about application numbers with, with former colleagues. Whenever we get together, we're talking about the work we're doing and research and kind of nerdy, cool stuff. Um, but what I'm about to share is uh, healthcare care programs specifically in the United States. Um, and it does seem like we're going to experience some decline in the frontline clinical staff availability in probably the next you know, two to five years, as long as it takes for these, these students to matriculate through. But for those that wonder, from a medical college standpoint, so the, the doctors, this last acad- academic year, 2022 to 2023, the American The Association of American Medical Colleges reported an increase in medical school enrollment uh, up to uh, 30.2 percent. So they were 30 percent above last year's enrollment rate, which is wonderful. You know we've got a lot of, again, an elderly population or an aging population um, that's going to need more doctors. They've been talking about the um, the pending doctor shortage for, again, as long as I can remember. So Having a 30% increase, sounds good, we're gonna get more doctors, right? The interesting findings come from the frontline clinical staff and the allied health professions, namely those revenue driver ones, right? So physical therapy, occupational therapy, nursing, respiratory therapy, the like, speech language pathology. I'm only gonna hit a couple highlights here, um, and then I'll kinda of talk a little bit about what I think uh, this this relates to, or, or why we might be seeing it. So the American Occupational Therapy Association puts out a report every year about uh, student enrollment in the programs that are ACODE accredited. Um, and for the last year that they have data for, which is 2021, or the enrollment date of 2021, the, you know, the um, that academic year, they reported what I would consider a very meager increase in enrollment of 0.84%. So, in a, compare that to doctors, they're seeing a 30% year-over-year increase in enrollment rate, occupational therapy 0.8, not even 1%. The American Council of uh, Academic Physical Therapy actually reported a net decrease in overall applications to PT cro- programs of 4.17% for this current academic year. The last time that I could find or the last data that I could find from enrollment from actually new students coming in was the year before the pandemic, the academic year of 2019 to 2020. I'm sure there's some out there. I just, you know, I've got a lot going on, writing a book, doing the podcast, working with clients, running a clinic. This was a 15-minute Google search. (laughs) So I'm sure there's data out there that's more recent. But they did report a, a net increase of 7% in that one year, that 2019 to 2020 year. So they're keeping up a little bit. The American College of Nursing or the American Association of of Colleges of Nursing, which you'd consider, at least when I was going through school, like everyone said, go to nursing, there's always gonna be nursing jobs. Nursing was seen as one of those fields in the medical, or one of those professions in the medical field that had just a lot of opportunity, (laughs) Um, a lot of quality management, Officers in ho- in hospitals are nurses or hold a nursing degree. A lot of utilization managers, a lot of um, management and administrative staff at hospitals are hold some kind of nursing degree. That's kind of the entryway through the door. Now you can make the argument that that's just because there are more nurses than there are other professions, and maybe there's something to be said there. Like the uh, hospital employs more nurses as a as a percentage of total staff than physical therapists, so it's no it's no wonder that more nurses are Um, in those administrative roles because there's just more of them and there's something to that I think there's if you've worked in healthcare, you know there's a little bit more to it than that so what do we make of these these numbers as again we've got 30% increase on the doctor side and then on the allied health side marginal meager increases sometimes negative increases and what we are seeing is a decrease in overall applications to programs going forward For one, we can conclude, obviously, the frontline clinical staff and allied health professions will be in short supply, right? That's like, that's a (laughs) no-brainer. I think the current estimates for for the demand growth in those fields is somewhere, depending on the numbers that you look at, somewhere between 20 and 30%. So 20 and 30% of uh, increase year over year for the demand, and you only have like a one, less than 1% increase in enrollment every year, and that's already gonna lead to shortages, right? Um, what I find interesting though, and I've said this again, is how this decline in student enrollment or applications is really a lagging indicator for the sentiment of the current population of licensed clinicians out there. So instead of viewing enrollment as this leading indicator of where the workforce will be in five years, I think we really need to look at it as a lagging indicator of the current, of the sentiment of the current, clinicians that are working in our hospitals, in our clinics now, because they're the ones that are affecting applications to programs. You go online, you read any kind of forums, any kind of, um, uh, what are they called, message boards or anything like that, where you've got clinicians talking about what it's like to be a clinician in their field today. And it is not an overwhelmingly positive uh, viewpoint that you get right? Um, you get a lot of, a lot of negative talk about increasing workload demands, decreasing respect in the workplace. You're the first ones to get fired when things go bad, but you're also the first ones that get pushed on to increase it and produce more when the, when the revenue starts going down as well. So all of that is, is just not good, and that is affecting students that are looking now to apply to, to professions. Now, We've had somebody on the show recently, well, not recently, probably 20 episodes back, and he it was the Build Your Team episode, and I can't remember the doctor's name. He runs an ophthalmology group, but he talked about why do healthcare or why do people go into healthcare? They go into healthcare because they want to help people. They feel like it is this sense of of mission or purpose. Um, as I like to say, it's it's more of a vocational calling than it is a career choice. However, those people also, I mean, you can help somebody as an accountant, right? <laughs> you can help somebody save a lot of money on their taxes and you know, run a profitable business as an accountant. That still counts as helping somebody. The reason that a lot of folks gravitate towards healthcare in particular is a large majority of that, a large chunk of that is because of the perceived job security. There's always going to be sick people. You know, that that was told to me countless times in undergrad and throughout graduate school. There's always going to be sick people. You're always going to find work as a clinician. There's always going to be, you know, insert whatever your need is, whatever your specialty is in healthcare. There's always going to be that need. You're always going to be able to have a, you find a job and find a job that you want making a decent living. And what we've seen over the last year, probably not the last year, but the last probably 10 years, is that. Yeah, you're always gonna have a job, but that job might be super high stress, require a lot of productive capacity from you that in some, t- in some instances is just not realistic. And then on top of that, there's just the, the, the reduction of your job from something meaningful like a vocation to simply checking off boxes on a checklist in order to meet whatever productivity standard is there so that you can get paid, right? So all of that kind of bleeds through when you read any kind of article written by a clinician (laughs) probably in the last five years, Uh, specifically through the social media channels, right? Um, There's a, I think it's the non-clinical PT, um, and Meredith is great. I I did an interview for her early on in my consulting career about it. And even back then, there was interest in how do you take a step away from being a, a clinical frontline staff? And we'll talk about that more here in a little bit. But the general sentiment among healthcare providers, specifically those working frontline clinical work, is not very positive. And that is going to have an impact on enrollment rates. So what I see... When I'm sitting in these meetings and we have these conversations about enrollments at, at college programs decreasing year over year, and what are we gonna do and why, what is the problem? The problem is not that well, let me let me back up. So one of the one of the initiatives that we heard at one of these meetings was that there's a group that will remain unnamed. <laughs> and this organization thinks that the way to, the way to attract more applicants to this is specifically for OT and PT programs is to highlight the non-clinical work that is available, these unique areas of practice, these digital and virtual service delivery methods, and yada, yada, all these you know working in software and working in tech and all that kind of stuff. And they're kind of holding this up as like, look, you can get a degree in OT or PT and go into one of these areas. That that does not address the problem. <laughs> the problem or the reason why you're seeing decreased enrollment and decreased application to, to programs across the country is not because people don't see there's opportunities for, you know, non clinical work or they don't see that there's opportunities for um, for unique positions or you know, just stuff that you wouldn't normally get to do every day. That's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is that the majority of people look at healthcare and they don't want to be part of it. They don't want to be part of a machine that is cranking out high volumes of mediocre, in this case, therapy work, right? They don't want to be under the, the conveyor belt of therapy, doing the same exercises or the same treatment to the same people every day, day over day, regardless of of what the situation is or the unique factors, like they're not leaning in at all, or they're they're not, uh, organizations are not capitalizing on the fact that these clinicians come to the profession with a deep sense of meaning, purpose, and vocation. And what they do the first three years while they're a clinician is beat that out of them by running them through this high volume fee-for-service model, business model. So it is a function of the business model, it is a function of the way healthcare organizations make money that has led to this situation where now we are seeing decrease enrollment and decrease applications to these professions. It's not because they don't see the the degree itself as being versatile, it's that they know that you've gotta put in years in a, a therapy mill before you can jump into some of those degrees, right? Or some of those other roles. Um, so some of the main levels or the main topics around this, like, why are we seeing like, why, why is sentiment poor or decreasing and declining in the current population of licensed clinical staff out there? Part of it is clinician burnout. And I've already talked about that kind of the increase in work demands, the fact that you're dehumanizing healthcare at a very, very basic level. People are, are not viewed as unique individuals. They're, they're viewed as, uh, Unique social security numbers coming through a clinic or a number of billable units available for that clinician to meet their productivity standards, right? Um, And you can, again, you can talk about kind of the pandemic's effects on that. I will say that the pandemic, my position is that the pandemic really just accelerated the inevitable. And I've already said that, so there's no reason to go back into that. But what that has led to is clinician attrition. Um, So what leads us to clinician attrition? Those clinicians that experience burnout and saw an opportunity probably over the last several years. This was happening in, in drips and drabs, probably over the last, you know, five to seven years, and then really boom, accelerated during during the pandemic. They saw an opportunity and they decided to make a switch out of clinical care entirely. Many clinicians still took positions that were related to the clinical experience, you know, medical documentation reviewers or auditors. A quality assurance positions, um, you know, back office administrative roles, um, management roles, that sort of thing. Um, some folks like myself ended up in uh, clinical consulting or healthcare co- consulting, which was still relying a lot at the time on on my clinical expertise, my clinical background, um, but it wasn't direct, you know, frontline patient care. A few found roles, you know, in the healthcare technology space, you know, working for uh, organizations that are developing, you know, software, SaaS business models, and they're providing some clinical insight into utilization or uh, UX, UI design and, and features and all that kind of stuff. A lot of folks that I've spoken to recently have ended up in DME sales or durable medical equipment sales. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and then some clinicians just left the healthcare field altogether. Um, I've talked to folks who have ended up in real estate or insurance sales or even banking. Um, it's And at some point, it's, it's just simple math, right? You have a decreasing number of available clinicians combined with meager or declining student enrollment means that the supply of available clinical staff is or will be in the years to come very low. Um, so this there was already kind of a sense of or a build-up to clinician burnout. We had Larry Benz on the show probably a couple years ago now at this point talking about his book, Called to Care, where he did a very good job of laying out kind of how this high-productive or high-volume fee-for-service business model, because that's what it is, the business model of healthcare, leads to calcification, dehumanization, and ultimately clinical burnout. Um, He also laid out how you can if you're in that if you find yourself in that position how to um, get out of that and uh, you can we'll link to that show in the in the show notes you can go re- listen to that it was a great conversation but um, whether it results in clinicians leaving the field entirely or seeking non-traditional or non-clinical roles the major factors that are driving this move seem to be related to again that work pressure resulting from the business and reimbursement models of healthcare particularly this is the US now I mean I know that and other places in the world where you have national healthcare services you're still seeing some pressure you're still seeing some clinician or attrition and those are for different reasons however they they're related and they do involve burnout and dehumanization but that's the topic of an entirely different uh, podcast and or article right the advent of remote work so remote work has impacted healthcare at some level we'll talk about it here in a little bit Um, the desire for increased flexibility, again, arguably from this advent of remote work, and then a growing interest in both that non-traditional or non-clinical applications of, of clinical skills or clinical education. So let's break them down very, very briefly. I've already rambled on long enough, and then we'll kind of wrap it up. I do have an article on this topic coming out probably... When is this? This is August 9th, so it'll probably be published on the 15th um, on the website, and I'll send an email out. If you're on the email list, you'll get a, a kind of an expanded version of this podcast, but that has a lot of specifics and links. <laughs> so I'm not gonna beat a dead horse here, but that first topic that we, that we mentioned that's um, pushing clinicians to leave the field entirely or seek that non-traditional work would be those work pressures resulting from the business and reimbursement models of healthcare. I cover this in great detail in my book, Here's a shameless plug for the book. It will release October 6th. It is called Better Outcomes, A Guide for Humanizing Healthcare. But I spent an entire chapter in that book talking about uh, value-based reimbursement, value-based reimbursement models, and how decoupling fee-for-service from the way clinicians make money is good for healthcare in general. And then I also spend an entire chapter talking about policies and procedures in the rigid organization and structure of healthcare and how that also leads to dehumanization and increases workplace pressures. All right, enough of that commercial. <laughs> um, so whether it's a time-based coding system or a procedure-based coding system, here's the long and short of it. Healthcare organizations generally receive revenue based on the amount of healthcare services they provide, not necessarily the effectiveness of those services or their treatments or the value they provide. Um, there are some groups out there and some organizations out there that are doing quote unquote value based or merit based reimbursement systems, but as I shared in a recent video on our YouTube channel, those systems and those schemes, if you will, those reimbursement schemes fall short in a lot of ways. They don't take into account a lot of the factors. So it, they're very difficult, and there's the, the bugs are still being ironed out, and the wrinkles are still being ironed out on those uh, value-based payment programs. But why is this important? Why is it important that healthcare, or healthcare organizations receive revenue based on the amount of healthcare services they provide? Well, it doesn't take an economist to take this out. Um, uh, to tease this out, right? But incentives matter. <laughs> so because a business, um, then, and these hospitals are run like businesses. So because this business, um, their revenue model really drives you the the organizational decisions, right? So since their um, their revenue model is based on the proportion, or their revenue grows in proportion to the number of units or codes that they bill more patients billed, means more money, right? So the reimbursement and revenue model incentivizes these healthcare clinics and organizations to aim for high volume, highly productive, or billable visits or encounters. So it means that clinicians, the people that are delivering the services, feel pressure to see an ever increasing number of patients and to not only, um, and to only spend time doing quote unquote billable activities with these patients. You know, we've, I'm sure you've heard it. If you work in healthcare, how do we cut down on the amount of non-billable time that our clinicians are are spending with patients? A lot of times, that non-billable time is where those relationships are being formed, where the foundation for better clinical outcomes is being laid. And if you take that away, it becomes a very, very impersonal, dehumanized experience of receiving care. Again, talk about it in my book a good bit. Um, so you combine that with the ancillary healthcare professionals acting, as I mentioned, as the revenue d- generators for healthcare organizations, and you've got a recipe for high stress work environments specifically in those disciplines. So while doctors and surgeons may also feel the pressure to, um, to see you know more patients or bill bill more units or whatever, the ancillary healthcare professionals feel the pressure from both ends of the spectrum. On the payer side, reimbursement continues to decline. So naturally, services of reimbursements get cut. Gets cut first are the higher volume services just because, again, those like Blue Cross with Shield looks at their spend every year and they say, Oh, you know what? 70% of our um, spend on healthcare went to these high volume services like physical therapy. We got to either decrease the number of, of um, appointments that we authorize for our patients or we need to decrease how much we're paying them, probably as a combination of both, right? So, those higher volume services like those uh, ancillary healthcare. Clinicians like physical therapy, occupational therapy, rehab, nursing—they kind of feel the squeeze from a reimbursement um, uh, decrease, right? So, for every knee surgery, as an example, physical therapy and nursing bill out many more codes, probably orders of magnitude more codes than the physician does. The physician is billing a code for the, you know, for the pre preoperative encounter, the orth, uh, the the surgery itself, the orthopedic surgical procedure encounter, um, postoperative care. Um, And then what they see the patient two weeks after surgery, six weeks after surgery, and then like six months after surgery or whatever it is. So they they see their patients for a a smaller, uh, just less encounters. Right. Um, And then on the other side, on the organizational side, when reimbursement gets cut, um, so do the departmental budgets. Right. So you've got a situation where. Ancillary healthcare professionals make up a big chunk of the revenue simply by by nature of the fact that their work involves more frequent touches or more frequent encounters with patients. So they're always on the target list for uh, reimbursement cuts or reimbursement um, decreases. Right, and then on top of that, when those decreases occur, um, those organizations react with cuts to departmental budgets. So. Hiring freezes, um, no new job postings, all this pressure um, from a cost standpoint also leads to this increase. We need to increase uh, productivity and utilization, and this pushes many clinicians to the point of burnout and even attrition from the field entirely. So that's the business model thing. Let's talk about remote work. How has remote work affected it? Well, take what I just described about the workplace pressures. The drive for productivity and utilization and throw in the whole remote work um ex- explosion it's really been an explosion probably over the last several years i remember telling folks when i was um when i was starting consulting in 2017 so i started consulting i left a clinic i was working from home out of my home office basically four or five days a week and i would tell people that that fact alone, and they would look at me and their heads would turn inside. I was like, you're working from home? Like, even back then, five years ago, it was a, a big deal. Not very many people work from home. I mean, maybe if you worked for Silicon Valley or you worked for a tech company, yeah, you worked in computers. It was not a big deal. Um, but we had things like Zoom, right? Zoom was around in 2017. Um so like I said, I, th- I think the pandemic didn't cause this so much, the remote work so much, as it simply just accelerated the rate of change that many folks were already experiencing, right? Um, I've been working from home, like I said, basically remotely since 2017. Sure, now, you know, like I've got an office now, I'm working upstairs in the studio above the clinic, um, but I could easily do what I'm doing now from home or a coffee shop or the beach. <laughs> That's an idea now, right? Um, but how has this this great increase in remote work affected healthcare recruitment and retention? On the side of retention side, and maybe even on the recruitment side, at some point, I know I use it the other day uh, to recruit a physical therapist. <laughs> um, remote impact has really impacted those licensed clinical uh, those licensed clinical staff who have a portion of their work that um, that is administrative documentation, is what I mean, right? Um, clinicians have begun to see that a lot of the knowledge work, quote unquote, that we do in healthcare. So the documentation, the report writing recommendations, all of that can be done remotely. Um, This has been, this has done a couple of things. One, it has pushed clinicians to try and leave direct patient care entirely because they know that there's opportunities now. They know there's opportunities for non-clinical remote work and they want them. So maybe it's somebody that got into healthcare because they wanted a safe, secure job. They realized there's a way to have that safe, secure job without being frontline clinical staff that are going to take it. I'm not talking about them so much. It has also caused those frontline clinical staff, though, and we'll talk about flexibility here in a little bit, who are looking for a little bit more flexibility or um, quote, unquote, work-life balance to inquire about and sometimes demand from employers, if we're being honest, the ability to dictate where and when some of that non-patient-facing work takes place. Um, So because remote work opens up the flexibility and options to work in an environment other than the physical clinic, many clinicians see it as an opportunity to, quote, get away from the the, from the hectic office. Right. Um, And it can be used theoretically as a way to kind of uh, a pressure relief valve. Right. You've got a clinician that's it's stress, they've had a really hard day, why don't you take the rest of the day off, work on your notes from home, whatever, right? Again, we're not gonna talk about the, the IT security and the, the safety procedures you need to have in place. Um, reach out to a professional about that, but there are some considerations, you know, whether it's a VPN or a mode access network, whatever it happens to be, you wanna make sure that from a security standpoint, you're not placing your data at risk. We did a, a webinar on this, Tail end, or maybe la- tail end of the summer in 2021, you can go find it on our um, site. Just go into workshops and courses, and it should be there. It's free. Watch it, um, and then reach out to somebody about doing that. So that's my little sidebar for that. Work from re- home, remote work is doable in healthcare. You just need to have the the proper IT uh, supports and security in place. Okay, um, but allowing clinicians to complete some of these tasks remotely may not cost much in the sense of operational efficiency right it doesn't cost a whole lot extra to do that but it may actually improve employee morale in the long run but it's driving this this push right the remote remote work has opened this up their uh, clinicians want to be able to work a little bit more flexibly they want to be able to work from here from there they want to be able to do something like um i just had this conversation with somebody the other day i don't need to be in the clinic to do my notes correct that is entirely true right Um, unless there's some operational procedure that you have the clinician doing that they can't do from, from home. But in some cases it might be worth exploring. In addition to the administrative or the non-patient care tasks, we are very much moving towards a hybrid, uh, level of care, right? Where we're not just delivering care in the clinic one-on-one face-to-face, but services like telehealth, um, asynchronous telehealth, secure messaging, secure communications, all of that kind of stuff, if you would, the tech side of healthcare has really, again, because of the pandemic, just accelerated. It was going to happen eventually, but it it accelerated. So um, while the regulatory bodies, and I I sit on the state board for OT in Georgia and on the national board for occupational therapy in the US, and we have these conversations all the time about who regulates what and and, uh, where do you need to be licensed if you're Um, delivering services across the country this that and the other and you know licensure compacts are coming into play so the regulatory bodies are really scrambling to try to figure out how to fix this or how to make sure it works smoothly because everybody sees the benefit but um, it is something that's a viable option so it's something that can and should be expected depending on the clinical specialty right Um, I don't really want to talk about non-clinical remote work a little bit. I will mention it in the fact that it has impacted clinical recruitment and retention. And I would argue, again, that it's more of that indicator of the sentiment of clinicians in the day-to-day clinic um, as opposed to its, its own thing. I think it's an outcropping and just a natural extension of this, of the, of the remote work that became possible. And clinicians that were already feeling stressed and pressured by productivity demands just felt like it was a natural move. I'll just take my skills and go somewhere else, either utilization review or medical documentation audits or product development or, or whatever. Um, since these jobs both have the benefit of being both flexible um, and remote work options, and it removes the volume of productivity-based revenue models of traditional healthcare, they've been receiving a lot of attention from clinicians. So it's definitely something to be aware of flexibility kind of falls in it but you know whether you're calling it um, work-life balance or some other popular term that's in vogue these days it all stems from the idea that that people should be able to strike a balance between the domains of the workplace and their non-work life right Um, so remote work has affected that um, in that because some of the work can be done outside of the office a lot of clinicians are looking for that they're looking for opportunities to not be chained to the clinic so to speak all day every day um and and that's kind of you know i've, I've got thoughts in it and we'll share them here maybe in a minute but we're already approaching 55 uh, minutes here i think what we need to think about, probably, and maybe I'll do a follow-up episode to this, is kind of the future of, of healthcare recruiting. Someone asked me the other day, he's a, another consultant, um, he's a, a marketing consultant, in uh, he's servicing right now a, a clinic that's having a hard time attracting staff, and he said, well, do you think there's gonna be a correction? Because you know, he's coming from outside of healthcare in general, and I said, "Oh yeah, you, you know," I kind of rattled off some of these things. Oh, there's a high, high burnover, high turnover rate, high attrition rate. A lot of clinicians are going to these non-clinical remote work uh, um, opportunities, and he said, "Well, surely there's going to be a correction, right? Like the market can't sustain that." And I do think at some level he's he's correct, right? At some level, the demand for Um, non-clinical quote-unquote non-clinical remote work opportunities has already far exceeded the availability of those opportunities one Um, and then they've also it's it's gotten the attention of folks even in the academic realm so it is going to have an effect I don't necessarily know if there's going to be this correction where you see a whole lot of these people that left clinical care to do non-clinical work, fall 100% back into um, going back to a clinic. I just don't see that happening. I said that when I started consulting in 2017, I remember talking to a colleague and I said, I just don't think I could ever go back to working 100% in a clinic anymore. Not because I don't love it. You know, I bought a clinic because I wanted to treat patients again and I do treat patients a couple days a week and it's great and it's wonderful. but there's something about one the impact you can make in the, some of those non-clinical roles, but then also just the the breathability and flexibility of, of not being under the demands of uh, productive or utilization standards, right? This fee-for-service business model, which seems to be a problem, right? Um, so the, on the topic of will there be a correction? I do not believe there's going to be a correction. This is my prediction, right? So um, I might subject to being wrong. <laughs> Uh, I don't think there's going to be correction in this. I think what you're going to see, or at least a big hard swing, you know, like the pendulum has swung to a lot of a lot of folks, and I would think that that's probably a loud minority, not so much a a majority, but a number of clinicians trying to move out of healthcare, direct healthcare services entirely into non-clinical remote work like software development or product development or something like that. Utilization review, you name it. I don't think there's going to be a hard swing of the pendulum back the other way where all these people leave these, these opportunities in droves. Um, I think what you're going to have is hopefully a, a nice balance resting in the middle, which you will find because I have experienced this myself and I've talked to other clinicians who were in my shoes who left clinical care for something like consulting or a product development or software development or whatever it is. And we got into healthcare, again, it's it's a vocation. We got into healthcare because we have this desire to help serve our fellow man. I mean, that's what it is at the end of the day. Call me, you know, pie in the sky, idealist. I do feel like healthcare, the people, the majority of people that go into healthcare, go into it from a sense of calling. Um, this is our, this is how we make our mark in the world. Um, in the sense that we want to help better the lives of those around us, those that come into our clinic, right? You don't necessarily get that working in um, working in tech, working in consulting. Um, I mean, I was I was helping manage integrated clinical support or integrated clinical services for a statewide organization. Um, again across the state thousands of the policies that we were making the the procedures that I was putting in place the the recommendations that I was making the projects we were implementing were affecting thousands of people um, and ho- you know hopefully for the better right that's why we were doing it we we're trying to improve the care and access and quality for thousands and thousands of people there is still something that you miss though when you're not seeing miss smith come in the clinic and hey how's the how's the grandkids doing you know i'm i work in orthopedics and chronic pain and, and hand therapy so how's the you know, are you able to do xyz were you able to go out in the backyard and throw the baseball with the grandkid again you miss something very very real in in doing the large high impact stuff we need the high impact stuff i get it i love doing it i love consulting with health organizations and knowing that The changes that I made are going to improve access to care and the quality of care at that organization, which is going to impact many more thousand patients than I could ever hope to touch in my clinical career. But there's still something, healthcare is a human experience, right? I say it all the time. Healthcare is human. That human connection, the human relationships still drive a lot of healthcare providers. So a lot of these folks that have swung completely out of clinical care might be totally happy doing it. I would I would venture to say that if you asked if you asked them, the majority would say, if there was a way that I could do both and not feel pressured to do to to live under these productivity standards, I would absolutely do both. I would absolutely go work for this software startup creating this tool, but I would want to keep a day or two in the clinic. Um and b- part of it myself too, like the, the consulting work that I do specifically, I feel that the clinical work is what drives a lot of the insights. It is because I am in there every day talking with my own staff and then talking to patients, running an organization where I see and I keep abreast, if you would, of the trends in healthcare. So I do think that while there might be a correction so to speak i don't i don't think it's gonna be a big pendulum swing into all these people that are out of clinical care coming back in i think we're going to see more of a hybrid um a hybrid model of recruiting and retaining clinicians where maybe some of that work involves non-clinical maybe some of the work of that position involves non-clinical work administrative work utilization review or revert work revert can't even speak here it's the end of a long hour right um but coupled with that human connection that you get in the clinic. So when I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, how do you win in healthcare recruitment these days? Um, You need to create an environment that entices this new wave of flexibility, desiring clinicians. You want to give them the opportunities to provide value to the organization in a way other than direct patient care, if that's what they desire. I mean, I know some people that all they want to do is treat patients and that's totally fine. I know that a lot of the younger folks that are coming up that I have a converse, that I have conversations with that come through the clinic as students or that I interview for the organizations that I consult with or for my own clinic want to develop some of those non-clinical skill, skill sets like business management, like marketing, like business development. We want to hire intentionally, right? You're not looking to simply fill a position. You're looking to hire someone who has the skill set, but also the vision and the attitude that will advance the mission, vision, values of your organization. That, again, might sound sound kind of pie in the sky, but it's true. Hiring right helps retain staff for the long term. And be quick to fire, right? Um, I've been in that position where I've hired somebody and then I've realized this is not a good fit for the organization, and we have a frank conversation, and they go their way, and we go our way, and the organization f- is better for it. Not because that person is bad, uh, but because they just weren't a good culture fit. Um, the recruitment process itself, again, we should, it should be bit digitized and it should be a little bit prolonged, right? Um, be slow to hire, quick to fire. It's probably never been more true, uh, for healthcare than it has been today. And you want to, you want to have all these conversations with, with your candidates about work, work schedule flexibility, about autonomy and independence, about the skill building opportunities or mentoring that is going to be available to someone that joins your organization, on both the clinical side and then the non-clinical side, I have um, uh, had a conversation with somebody the other day that wants to work at the organization that I work, ProActive Rehabilitation and Wellness. Find us at pro-activehealth.com. health.com. little plug there for the clinic, but um, and they wanted to know their their ultimate goal is. I think they're they're going to move at some point because their spouse is in the military or something like that, and they want to develop an independent private practice that they can kind of take with them from location to location as they. As they get moved around, as as their spouse gets restationed. Um, so what this person wanted was they wanted to work, they wanted to to use their skills, but they also wanted to to get insight into running the business side of the operation, the marketing, the business development, the billing, all of that kind of stuff, because they wanted to be able to do it on their own, right? And that's a great opportunity if that if you have the capacity to do that in your clinic, to bring on that person. I mean, sure, you know, there's there might be some turnover there. They they. You hire them knowing that they're, they're going to be restationed soon. Um, but you're kind of meeting all the needs of the organization. You're getting the patients seen. The patients are getting good quality care. And then you're also meeting the demands or the needs of your staff. They're feeling cared for. They're They see opportunities for them, both professionally and personally in development and growth, whether it be through promotions or just building a new skill set. And that in and of itself helps decrease um, burnout and turnover and all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm definitely going to do a follow-up, I think. Shoot me an email if you think a follow-up would be worth it. I, I'm probably going to do it anyways. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, this part. We'll call it part one, recruiting and retaining clinical staff part one. And then um, maybe I'll record a part two, and it'll be all about some of those um, things that I've either implemented at the clinic that I work at or the clinics that I consult in or other organizations that I've come in contact with that have found unique ways to attract and retain clinical staff and and walking that line between um, 100% clinical and the non-clinical element and, and what we do in that. So stay tuned for that. Um, that's all I've got, I think. That's, that's a good place to end. Yeah, part two will be about uh, making it all work. So... Um, If you like the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. Um, If you want to be notified whenever we do something cool, like drop an episode or whenever the book is officially launched, published and launched, um, head on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. Sign up there. There's places everywhere for you to sign up for the email list. We will be running some kind of giveaway for the book. I'm not entirely sure what it's going to be yet. Um, I've got to do some thinking, put my creative brain on, but I think it's going to be cool. <laughs> if nothing else, maybe you'll get a free copy of the book, right? Um, and if you're a healthcare organization, clinic owner, an administrator, a manager, heck, maybe even you work in HR, and you realize that healthcare, um, while being a great and wonderful and noble profession, Needs to run better, <laughs> and you want to to make changes at your organization that not only attract, um, acquire, and engage patients that help you helps you attract, acquire, and engage patients, but also makes your place a life giving place for employees to come and work. Um, check out what we do um, and see how we can help. I'd love to have a conversation with you. You can head on over to www.rehabupracticeSolutions.com, Click that tab on what do we do, um, and you'll see the various consulting projects. We do have a program called the Ultimate Patient Experience Blueprint, um, but for something like this, something that involves staff recruit, staff recruitment and retention, just kind of the foundation of, of humanizing healthcare, just click on that consulting tab and, and just have a conversation. I'd love having conversations with folks, even if it doesn't lead to, lead to projects, right? Interesting conversations. That's why I do the podcast. That's why I do the work that I do. Um, that's all I've got, folks. Until the next time, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then.
0: Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www. Wehab you Solutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.